I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hi listeners, it's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name and, as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello listeners, this is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. This episode has been released since the middle of April, but as I, Corey, 
was recording some introductions for some upcoming episodes, I realized that we should have provided an audio quality warning for this episode to begin with. If you're new to the podcast or re-listening, you'll hear the audio is a little bit funky for this interview. We had some audio bleed from one person's track to the others due to microphone volumes while we were in discussion, and that left the audio a bit off in post-production. Please forgive that. Anyway, enjoy this incredible conversation with Dr. Simone Chess. Now, today's episode looks a little different than our average mini-episode. In today's episode, we are joined by a special guest, Dr. Simone Chess, to discuss a non-Shakespeare play. We are here to discuss Galatea by John Lilly. Simone Chess is an associate professor of English and director of the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies program at Wayne State University in Detroit. With research and teaching interests in early modern literature and culture, queer and trans studies, asexuality, and disability. She is the author of Male-to-Female Cross-Dressing in Early Modern English Literature, Gender, Performance, and Queer Relations from Rutledge 2016, and co-editor with Colby Gordon and Will Fisher of a special issue on Early Modern Trans Studies for the Journal for Early Modern Cultural Studies, which came out in 2020. With her graduate students, she built the Warrior Women Project, a searchable database of more than 100 early modern broadside ballads on the theme of people assigned female at birth who become male soldiers and sailors. Chess is currently working on two new book projects, one on Shakespeare and trans culture for Rutledge Spotlight on Shakespeare series, and another focused on early modern disability, queerness, and adaptive technologies. If you enjoy this conversation, we will be releasing an extended version of our conversation with Dr. Chess to our Patreon on April 27th. To join our Patreon, go to patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Now, on to the episode. Here we are. Hi, Simone. How are you doing today? Hi. Uh, I am really excited to be here. Thank you for making time to talk to me. Good. We are so excited to have you on the podcast. So in your introduction to the play for The Show Must Go Online, you said that you believed Galatea to be the queerest play of the Renaissance. For our listeners who may not be familiar with Galatea, can you summarize what makes it so queer? Yeah. So the main reason that people think of this as one of the queerest plays of the Renaissance is because of the primary plot. So this play takes place in a village that has a deal with the sea god Neptune, that each year they're going to pick the most beautiful woman in their village and sacrifice her to Neptune, and that maintains the peace and wellness of their village. So that is sort of the premise of the play. But the play begins with two fathers who each believe that their daughter is the most beautiful and therefore the most likely to be sacrificed. And they each, without knowing the other is doing this, ask their daughter to dress as a boy and go into the woods and hide. And when they're in the woods, these two daughters, whose names are Galatea and Philida, meet and are not sure who they're meeting. Each thinks they're meeting a boy and they fall in love. And then over the course of the play, they have a romance. And at the end of the play, when all of this is discovered, they're still in love. And ultimately, the goddess Venus agrees that they should be allowed to marry. And at the end of the play, she says, I like well and allow it. And then she says, they're going to get married. One of them will become a boy, but we never see which one. So that's sort of the main reason that people think of this as an extremely queer play, because for folks who are more used to Shakespeare as their kind of main early modern theater, 
they're accustomed to what we call cross-dressing plots. They're accustomed to confused identity. But this sort of sustained, detailed, loving, intimate kind of queer contact that is sustained all the way to the end of the play and never really straightened out, that is one of the things that make people think of it as an extremely queer play. As I said in that same introduction, though, the longer I work with this play and the more I think about it, the more I'm aware of the other kinds of queerness. So there's the Galatea and Philitta relationship, which is over the top, a trans story, a queer story. But then there's this troupe of nymphs. And in that production that you're talking about, the director, Rachel Chung, envisioned them as asexual nymphs, which is interesting to think about. So that's a kind of queerness. Mm-hmm. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about those dads, what's going on with them, yeah. and their, their genders and sexualities. And so I think what happens is that that queerness at the center of the play allows for just an explosion of queerness in all different areas of the play. And really, that has not yet been explored in most scholarship about it. So it's an exciting moment to be thinking about Galatea because the primary plot has had this explosion in trans studies and queer studies in the early modern period. The outside parts, I think, have more room for us to think about what makes this such a queer play. Right. I want to actually dive into some of your writing. Sure. Your article, or whatever you be, cross-dressing sex and gender labor in Galatea. Uh, you frame your analysis on the queerness of Galatea and Philida with Jane Ward's writing on the theory of gender labor. Yes. Can you explain gender labor? Yeah. I mean, I want to preface this by saying that one of the things that's most exciting about working in early modern trans studies is that with early modern studies, there's a sense that these texts aren't going anywhere, right? They've been here for hundreds of years. We're still learning and saying things about them, but you can take your time because the texts are old, right? Trans studies as a field is evolving super quickly. And so one of the challenges, but also exciting things is how much has changed even since that article came out. Things that I might say differently, language that I might use differently, things I bet the scholar Jane Ward, upon whose work I'm building, might do things differently. Mm-hmm. So so that's sort of just a content note as we talk about this, sort of where the that moment was in trans studies, which is already a little different. But anyway, Jane right. Ward is a sociologist and She was doing work on contemporary trans people in relationships, and she especially focused on trans men in relationships with cisgender women. And she Mm -hmm. focused on the ways that she saw both people in those relationships doing labor to co-construct, particularly the gender of the trans person in the relationship, but really both of their genders and their relationship. And so she identified three kinds of gender labor that she thought she saw going on. She calls the first one the labor of being the girl. And basically, in this scenario, in that dynamic of a relationship with a cis female partner and a trans male partner, she said, one thing that a female partner does is just be a woman, which in a heterosexist society, therefore produces masculinity for the other partner. Now, we know there's all kinds of other ways of being in relationship. But that was one of her kind of ideas. Mm-hmm. The second one is called the labor of forgetting. And that one's my favorite because it doesn't say that either partner, you know, has amnesia about the fact mm-hmm. of transness. They're not trying to hide that anyone in the relationship is trans, but together they do the labor of, I call it uh, like knowing unknowing, where you do not have transness at the center of your thinking about this other person, which of course, for anyone who knows and loves anyone who's trans, that's just true, right? You're not thinking Mm -hmm. about anyone's Mm -hmm. 
gender history or genitals when you are loving them, right? And so Mm -hmm. the labor of forgetting is participating in that project, not of erasing anyone's gender history, but not inhabiting that as the primary or most interesting or attractive thing about them, right? Right. And then the last one is called the gender of alliance. And that's closer to what we in the queer community still talk about as like ally work, just doing some of the hard work, taking some of the emotional labor so that the person who is in the more targeted group doesn't have to do that all by themselves. So that's Jane Ward's article Mm -hmm. coming out of sociology. And Really, all I'm doing in the article that you talk about is reading Galatea as a play that might be about gender labor, where we really get to see not just the two people who are in this relationship co-constructing their genders. And here, I think even more interestingly than in uh, in Jane's sort of case studies, these are two trans type characters, both constructing their own genders and constructing each other's genders, right? So there's this really interesting dynamic where they're doing that with and for each other. But then also, this is a play that's very community-oriented, right? They're in a small neighborhood, essentially. And so then I think gender labor extends beyond the romantic couple into all kinds of interactions elsewhere in the play. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I'm really excited about that aspect where there are there's the romantic couple co-constructing gender in ways that Ward would call gender labor. And then there's also sort of this bigger, more expansive community project going on. Yeah, because at the end, the community is like, oh, this makes sense. This is great. No one is opposing the relationship, you know? Right. Yeah. There's a quote that I use in the article from the scholar Laurie Shannon, who says, I don't think there's anywhere in Renaissance literature a scene with more consent than this scene. Just every person who exists in this village is in the scene and all of them are like, are we okay with this? We're okay with this, which I mean, I think is a pretty gay Uh (laughs) way of making decisions that that we're just going to process until we all reach consensus or whatever. And so (laughs) it is a process. There's this discussion like Diana's like, what do we think about this? And then, yeah, everybody is like, yes, we support it. And then Venus is like, what is the quote that Venus has that's brilliant? I like well and I allow it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so people talk a lot, like for a long time, scholarship about this play, in my opinion, kind of stalled out on the question, which one of them is the real boy, right? Like, can we guess? And there's like serious academic articles that are like, I feel like Galatea is a little bit butcher. She wears pants first, like these sort of like, I don't know, gender forensics kind of situation. But for me, I'm more interested in this gender labor part because what it does is it says, you know what, once this community decides that they like well and they allow it, doesn't matter if magic sex change is fake, right? And no one's actually going to change their sex in the play. They like well, they allow it, they consent. And then they're sort of signing on to do the labor of just seeing this couple as who they are or who they decide to be, right? And, and to me, that's a better ending than, you know, yeah. figuring out who actually grows a penis or whatever. Right. right. A bit obsessed with the genital aspect of it. Yeah. Where can we see these gender labors within the play itself? That's an interesting question. So when Galatea and Philetta are together in the woods, they're both very self-conscious and they spend a lot of time thinking about whether or not they're passing, whether or not they want to pass. Is it dangerous to pass? Is it dangerous to be seen? And so they're very concerned about moving like, speaking like, dressing like boys, right? Mm-hmm. When they look at each other, though, they are pumping each other up. Like, look at that boy. He could not be more handsome. What an excellent boy. I'm going to learn how to be a boy from him, right? And so depending on how the play is produced, what choices the actors make, sometimes this seems 
like they just are fooled by each other's disguises. I always think that's a little bit weird because here they are themselves dressing in a gender that wasn't the one that they did the week before, right? Yeah. But they don't suspect, they seem. So some people think, oh, they're really fooled. Other people think it's a wink and a nod kind of a situation. But mm-hmm. either way, most of what we know about the genders that we get to see, we hear from them speaking about each other and speaking to each other. Oh, what a great boy you are. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, whatever. And so, so I see that as a kind of key moment where they're doing the labor of building each other's genders. Mm-hmm. Similarly, in the kind of reveal scene, which if you study a lot of plays that sort of um, use kind of this gender disguise plot, the reveal scene is often kind of a gotcha moment. But in Galatea, it's a moment where we get to see Galatea and Felitta handle this really without going to the shock place. Like, okay, this might be true, but are you still Galatea? Are you still Felitta? In that mm-hmm. case, we're okay. And I see that as connected to the gender labor, right? That they are willing to sustain whatever kind of gender their partner wants because they're in love and that love doesn't shift when the reveal happens. So I see that as another place where that gender labor is in action. And then, mm-hmm. as I was saying earlier, I think we have to have seen all that gender labor and kind of trust and believe in it as an audience in order for that magical conclusion to work. Because I think we would be right to be a little skeptical about Venus's magic, especially since we don't get to see it. Right. But we don't have to be because, as I said, I think we have watched the production of gender as something mutual between this couple. And so we have confidence that they'll be able to do it moving forward. Mm-hmm. Nice. You mention in this same article that there is a shift in the idea of gender from a one sex model where biological sex is fluid and without distinction, like between male and female, to a two-sex model as early as the 16th century. Can you further explain what those two models are and when we would have seen them and how that could have affected early modern plays? Yeah, I mean, this is such a fraught topic, but one of the reasons we call this period the early modern is that a lot of the frameworks and sort of structures of thinking that we have now were being developed during this period. And that's true, especially or particularly around ways of thinking about embodiment, right? Ways of thinking about race, ways of thinking about ability, ways of thinking about gender, ways of thinking about sexuality. And so the way I was trained in early modern studies, we were taught to be really careful, right? Really historically specific. What did these words mean in the early modern period? And let's be really cautious not to project backward our modern beliefs and ideas, even as we understand our modern beliefs and ideas to have developed out of these frameworks that were emerging during this period. And that makes sense, right? We don't want to pretend there's no difference across hundreds of years. At the same time, I think as a field, this got us really stuck in this sort of like legalistic clause kind of work. So you used to have to say, uh, I am talking about queerness, but of course, homosexuality did not exist in the Renaissance. That word did not exist. And they thought about sexuality in a more act-based way. So there were acts that were sodomy, but they didn't think Mm -hmm. of those acts as connected to an identity, right? So you always had to say that the first footnote Mm -hmm. in any article and sort of the same thing with gender identity, right? They didn't think about it exactly the same way that we did. But the truth is, in the Renaissance, some people habitually practiced sodomy, and Mm -hmm. other people knew about that. So they didn't call them a homosexual, but they didn't also just like not understand 
uh, sexuality that worked in certain ways. And so I think we enforced a kind of false binary between the then and now. And I feel like mm-hmm. the same thing is true when we're talking about how people understood gender. So the one sex model is an understanding of human development in which basically the sort of quote unquote male anatomy and female anatomy are the same anatomy. And that depending on the temperature and climate of the womb and in the environment in which you're raised, that's going to make the difference between whether you grow into being a man or a woman, right? So mm-hmm. women are cold and wet, men are warm and dry. And there were even stories that like if women got too warm, they might overexert themselves. And then there's sort of a famous story of a girl who's overexercising. She leaps over a fence, her penis falls out, then she's a man. Right. And so the one sex model allows for trans storytelling in some ways because there's this sort of slipperiness between maleness and femaleness. Mm -hmm. They weren't quite so binary. And then as people learn more about anatomy, did more dissection, uh, had microscopes and could look at the cellular differences between different kinds of tissue, they developed a more binary way of thinking about male and female sex that is with us. One reason I think that right now is the moment that trans studies is coming to the early modern period, or one gift that the early modern period gives to contemporary trans studies is that the way early moderns imagine sex working is a lot closer to where we're coming back to now, right? Saying, well, sure, there are different kinds of organs, but there are lots of different kinds of genitals and lots of different hormonal arrangements and lots of different chromosomal arrangements and lots of different ways of being in whatever body you ended up with. And so I wouldn't say, ah, yes, the early modern period, such a great time for trans identity, right? It wasn't um, a, a totally flexible society, but some of their ways of thinking about gender, which science laughed at for a long time, ended up being a little closer to some of the ways that we think about gender now. We're less on the sort of penis falling out side of things, but, right. but the idea that that maleness and femaleness were connected with lots of variation in between them, that I think we've come back to that way of thinking mm-hmm. a little bit. That's fascinating. Yeah. Elise and I actually talk about things that are similar throughout the podcast where we're like, oh, wow, actually things regressed in a lot of ways moving forward from the early modern period and, you mm-hmm. know, like people like to assume history is progressive, constantly moving forward. And in some cases, it's certainly not. Another thing to think about that Galatea helps to demonstrate is how nuanced some thinking was about what could influence changes in gender. So, you know, they're wearing pants. Sawyer Kemp, Mm -hmm. who I know has been a guest on your show, writes about the magic Mm -hmm. of the pants, right? And how (laughs) there's this sort of like a magic, easy transformation of gender in plays that are quote unquote cross-dressing plays. You put on the pants, everyone's like, oh, I see a boy, right? Superman's glasses. Exactly. When we know that's not always how it works for people who would like to change how people perceive their genders. Mm-hmm. So, so there is that. But that's also playing against debates about the theater, about the assigned male actors who played all the roles in all of these parts. And one of the concerns about that was what happens to a boy who wears too many dresses for too long, right? How does that affect mm-hmm. their gender? What happens to us if we're attracted to that boy who wears dresses and is changed by them um, and so forth? And so those were generally kind of negative conversations in the early modern period, worries about what might happen to people's genders if they were too transgressive. But it does show a pretty strong belief that the gender you choose, the the clothes you wear, the way you present yourself can change who you are, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think that that is very much in conversation with contemporary trans experience and contemporary trans narratives. So that's happening too. 
Awesome. So my final question is, why perform Galatea? So, first of all, I don't know. I mean, do what you like. But but (laughs) I think it's important to show people that there is early modern drama outside of Shakespeare, before Shakespeare, different from Shakespeare, and that if we're going to continue to kind of reify pre-modern drama, early modern drama as the origins of English literary and theatrical history, then we ought to look more broadly at what that was. So Shakespeare was popular in his lifetime, but so was Lily. So were other authors. And so to broaden that gives us a better idea of what we actually mean when we talk about how influential this period was. Mm -hmm. Also, I think that when we use pre-modern plays to talk about contemporary issues, there's a kind of defamiliarization that lets people think differently and more openly than maybe they could in a contemporary setting. And so I think that's another reason to do it. And then I would add, and here I'm again thinking about Professor Kemp's work, I'm thinking about the problems we have with binary casting, how few roles there are for queer, trans, and non-binary actors, how sometimes the excuse that theaters will give for why they can't cast trans, queer, and non-binary actors as well. This is a play that has only men and women in it. Now, we know that's not true. We know there are always ways that you could do this work. But the more we produce plays that require, that demand queer participation, the more we create space for that and we lend it authority through the sort of cultural capital of being old, right? You know, this is a serious play. It's early modern. It's like Shakespeare. Therefore, it deserves funding. It deserves staging, right? And then it becomes a kind of Trojan horse for queer directors, queer actors, you know, all kind queer audiences, right, who otherwise are a little bit blocked out, except if they're sort of like the special guest to a play like Twelfth Night. That's what I would say. And also, it is a fun and wonderful play. And so, you know, we should watch it. We should see more weird stuff. Yeah, the the more Elise and I look at other, you know, plays, Roaring Girl, Galatea, the more we're like, why aren't we doing more of this? You know, early modern theater was not a monolith. The people of that time weren't a monolith. Why aren't we displaying that? Why aren't we putting that on stage and giving artists the chance to tell those stories? Yeah, and I mean, maybe that's another reason for this field that we're inventing that we call early modern trans studies is that it's building a better canon of plays that we can offer to people and not just plays of literary history that we can offer to people that helps to do the work that you're talking about, right? So how does somebody Mm -hmm. find Galatea? You know, I've said before, even five years ago, it was like a secret among queer early modern scholars. Have you read Galatea? Yes, we, we have secret takes on Galatea, right? All of a sudden, it's having three, four, five major productions a year, right? I like to believe that's evidence that if we do the work of excavating these texts, of making the case for why they're interesting and important, then we'll have more texts like this in the classroom, in the theater, finding their way into conversation in other ways. And I do think that that's helpful. Well, I feel like that's a great place to wrap this up. Thank you so much, Simone, for being here on our podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I have had such a great time. Making a Lily and Galatea fan out of me. So I appreciate that. You can't go back now. (laughs) No. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode. Our kind listeners, we can no other answer make, but thanks and thanks and ever thanks to our Patreon patrons, Vivian and Katie Smith. 
I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare Any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. The Merry Wives of Windsor, Act 4, Scene 3, spoken by Mistress Page. Yes, by all means, if it be but to scrape the figures out of your husband's brains, if they can find in their hearts the poor, unvirtuous, fat knight shall be any further afflicted, we too will still be the ministers.